All right, welcome back to another episode of Technical Roundup, brought to you by Blockfolio. We have our first returning guest. We've brought back, by popular demand and request, Max Bornen, to talk about crypto, the market, the crash, GBTC, all sorts of interesting stuff. Um, we're very excited to have him back on and bestow the privilege of first returning guest. And we've got some nuanced, tricky, and hopefully some interesting questions to ask as well. Not that there's any shortage of things to talk about. Joining me, of course, is Don and Max himself. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Very good. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much. It takes some, some people who speak German to pronounce my name correctly. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely learned from, uh, fr from last time. So, elephant in the room. The crypto price is quite different from when the last episode of the podcast took place. And there was a big crash. Um, even on the way up, people were speculating perhaps the magnitude of the pullback. And there were arguments being made that the pullback can't be the usual 30% because now the institutional players wouldn't allow for that type of volatility. And of course, in, tip in quintessential crypto fashion, uh, we basically went much further uh, than anyone anticipated. And Bitcoin corrected about 55%. Uh, Ethereum went much deeper. And I think a lot of people were kind of caught off guard by the magnitude of the move. We have, again, that bull market orthodoxy that 30 to 40% pullbacks are fine and then suddenly we did that and then we we almost did another one all in the same go so i guess the the classic almost finance journalism question or what, what the regular people want to know is why did the market crash i know that never has necessarily an easy answer but if we start there we can then move into perhaps some details of microstructure and the anatomy of the crash itself mm. well it didn't feel like much of a crash to me it happened over some some days uh, it was certainly not as violent as what we saw in in uh, late 2017 but still you know it's unpleasant for people who bought crypto at the top i um i think that uh it, it comes down to retail exhaustion the, the, there was good momentum with elon musk and everyone uh all the big banks getting into crypto and uh and not enough money in, in invested uh, towards the end of the of the run that's uh that's interesting because in comparison uh, a lot of institutional players have been selling actually all the way up um I'm not saying that it's, um, it's uh, I'm talking about the flows at B2C2. There might be just a subset of the market, but it's interesting that, uh, broadly speaking, institutions have faded the move. Now, if you fade the move from 25,000 to 60,000, it wasn't a good idea to fade the move in the first place, obviously. You should have done like George Soros, um, who famously said, I think it was George Soros, yeah, that when he sees a bubble, you know, he, he joins in, he adds fuel to the fire. <laughs> I like that, uh, that uh, chutzpah, right? And, um, and, and yeah, we're obviously not in, uh, in the new paradigm that John McAfee famously called uh, some years ago, bubbles are mathematically impossible in this paradigm. There were a few telltale signs that maybe the market was, uh, was overheating. One I'd, I really like to look at is the funding. So funding on, on perpetual swaps, funding on, um, on the futures. The term futures on Deribit, the, was, was it March? Yeah, the March next year, so a year, a one-year future. We're trading at, uh, I think that they reached something like 25% annualized. That's incredible. It's a risk-free 25%. I mean, obviously some liquidation risks and all, uh, but a risk-free 25% just by, by taking the, the, by providing financing to, to longs. That's incredible. That obviously reversed violently during the sell-off. Um, we uh, we touched negative negative funding rates uh, in in the term futures too, 
Now, interestingly, they've come back up to, to some levels. I've not checked recently, but uh, not so long ago, I saw 7%. And 7% annualized is still a good yield uh, for something that's, for all intents and purposes, broadly risk-free. And I wonder why, actually, because we can't say that the market is bullish right now. If anything, it's trading sideways. It's not very interesting. You would anticipate that in a market that doesn't really do anything, the, the lazy longs end up being liquidated because it's not going up and, they, and they're paying the funding. Um, I, I wonder what, uh, what the source of that still you know, positive funding environment uh, could be. I'm feeling it might be option strategies, actually, because when you, know, you sell an option as a market maker, um, you have to hedge. And in order to buy the delta of the option, well, you can buy physical, but that requires you to invest some balance sheet, or you can buy futures. And I think that might be one, one reason that we still have a positive funding environment in the future is just when you think about it, um, there's two types of, of, of important flows at the moment in crypto options. Not that I'm very close to that market, but you know, bear with me here. Um, miners that want to uh, either sell some upside to generate some yield or get some downside protection without giving up the upside. Uh, we know that miners are really fond of, uh, of keeping that crypto upside even if it's, uh, you know, maybe it would sometimes be more sensible to have a more, um, you know, risk-free model when they're, where they can, you know, evaluate how much inflows they're going to have by mining and then they hedge that fully with futures or something like that. They like to keep upside. In fact, in fact, I spoke to some miners, they wanted to buy call options on Bitcoin on top of what they have, right? I mean, they're, they're sometimes they're really true believers. Um, so you've got the miners, you would think would want, you know, to buy puts. Um, and then you've got the specs. The speculators, I think, broadly speaking, we can agree that you're really looking at people that want to buy some 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 cheap upside. Um, you know, sometimes the, the, there's a few big hedge funds, conventional hedge funds are have become famous, uh, like Brevin Howard, for expressing their views through option strategies in a way in ways that give them the exposure they want way cheaper. So I would feel that the balance of speculators in crypto, they're you know uh, biased towards the upside. So you've got that market there, and I, I would imagine that maybe the size of the specs compared to the miners that do want to hedge, considering how bullish they can sometimes be, you know, skews to the skews towards you know, buying buying upside, and that can mean that the market makers have to hedge by buying typically derivatives, uh, delta one derivatives like futures, and that maintains the the premium where it is in the futures, even though we can't really say that the, that the environment is bullish at all, is it? Do you think that's going to play out well for them? Or do you think that's going to bite them in the ass? Whoever is like buying right now or like in general, just getting mm -hmm. into position. I think if you're a market maker, that's just something that you incorporate into your prices, right? Because you, um, and that, that's one reason I think the derivative futures are really interesting. They're not the most traded instruments in crypto. You know, they don't compare to even the derivative perpetual swap to say nothing of, let's say the Binance perpetual swaps, which are, Products are, it's easier to wrap your head around those products. Um, but they're really interesting because of their term, because they have a finite uh, expiry. And when you do that, you are then able to match that to roughly equivalent options. Because if you want to do a six month option, then you need to hedge your upside, technically speaking, out to six months. And if you can buy a six month future, that's great. And you simply bake in to the cost the the price of the the, the price of the future uh, for the option, 
um, that gives you like the implied interest rate that you need in the option pricing formula. Um, but if you can't do that, then you have to hedge with, uh, with instrument like a perpetual swap where the funding will change every day or oftentimes even like three times a day. And the problem is that you traded an option with an implied funding that is really locked in because that then goes into the formula and that's what you charge the client as a premium. But then the funding in your hedges that you're going to experience, you don't know it in advance. That's like an imperfect hedge. So I think that the the, the, the Derby futures are very good for that. And I, I suspect that um, options market makers use that to hedge their um, the calls that they sell. So in that context, it doesn't really matter to the to the market makers where it goes up or down. You know, they kind of locked in that price, but they also locked in that price implicitly in the options that they traded. Only took about eight minutes to get the first meaningful alpha leak, as all the kids like to say, in terms of which futures contracts to monitor. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, I certainly never made the connection in my head of Deribit being the number one options platform and then that the futures there being somehow reflective or connected to that. But of course, with that argument, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of the funds um, we kind of follow and who write about their positioning in the crypto space, um, when the market was crashing, uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Avi Fellman of Block Tower. He wrote a piece um, as to where you might look for opportunities when the market crashes. Uh, and one of them was, again, on the topic of futures, was that, for example, March for a very short time got backwardated, uh, and then and that that didn't that it didn't stay backwardated for very long and kind of snapped back and that was a good way uh, to establish uh, some directional risk and then you don't even have to for example trade out of that position you could just you know if funding flips positive you just short the future uh, short the perp rather and you've got a nice little position there. Um, that said. As he pointed out, that that backwardate those backwardated conditions, especially on the first drop, didn't stick around for for much at all. It was a kind of snap reaction, uh, and then the market was you know the march was trading back in contango or at a premium, whatever. Why? So from a kind of market you know a mi microstructure point of view, um, you have these massive moves and then these insane mean reversions in terms of percentage moves. Uh, if, if as someone who looks at the market almost tick by tick or has that sort of level of understanding, what does it take to either fuel or ignite or create those big moves? Like what do they look like under the candlesticks, if that makes sense? Is it as simple as just liquidations and forced selling or is, is there more there that you pay attention to? There's one framework I like to use when I think of the market as a, as a whole is that you've got the what we call the inside spread and the outside spread the inside spread is when you look at the book and you see what it's trading like $36,000 and $36,005 that's the inside spread how's that spread determined there's market making firms that compete to be at the top of the book not too tight because you don't make enough money not too wide because you don't trade and those the competition there is determines the inside spread that the best bid offer that you see on the exchange. But those firms, they how do they determine what the right price should be? Well, they're going to look at the markets where the cash market is on. Well, typically, if you want to do that professionally, you look at almost every single exchange or all the exchanges that, that matter, at least 10. You have to you have to be connected at least to the exchanges. Then you get all the market data from those. And you see that, you know, well, if it's trading at some price on some exchange, probably you have to trade at a similar price on another exchange. And the most basic strategy, which I don't find exciting or, or stimulating, is that 
you just take the prices on one exchange and you replicate them on another, maybe with a bit of a spread, and you try to capture you know, a tiny spread. Whenever you trade on one platform, you go and hedge yourself on the other platform. Obviously, that doesn't get you very far because you end up paying a lot of fees, but you know, it's a pretty simple strategy. You call that spreading, right? Um, but you also have derivatives compared to the cash markets that becomes a bit more complicated because those things are not immediately comparable. So what you find is that typically more high frequency trading firms, they're going to see that the market on one side, let's say Coinbase, Bitcoin dollar, it goes up $10. Doesn't really matter from what price it goes up $10, it just goes up $10. So that means that probably on other platforms, it's also going to go up $10. Typically you do that actually the other way around. You start from a derivative platform, let's say the BitMEX future, uh, the BitMEX perpetual swap, you see it goes up $10, then probably Coinbase very soon is going to go up $10. So there's a lot of firms also arbitraging there, uh, that, 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 that difference, but it's not, it's not like for life. You know, it's a future, it trades at whatever price with some funding implied. And then you've got the cash market on Coinbase, trades at a different price, but you know that they kind of ought to go, they, they should both go up and down by roughly the same magnitude, at least in the short term. It's obviously easier when there's a bit of a magnitude, a bit of a move, because if it only moves like 50 cents, it's not. I mean, it, it amounts to, to nothing right now. If you've got a bigger move like $50, then yes, of course, there's many firms competing to, to bring those prices in line. Um, so you've got a lot of that, and that creates the inside spread because, you know, you look at all the, 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 the liquid markets, and the liquid markets are, as we said, I think last time, always the derivatives. Why? Because it costs less money to actually trade the derivatives in the sense that you don't need that much margin. I mean, typically crypto cash is fully funded. You have to, you know, you want to buy $100 of crypto, you need to deposit $100. So all the speculators, it's much more efficient for them to express their views through derivatives. And so that's where the market moves first. Um, it's not got to do with the, the product that's more complex. In fact, it is more complex to trade derivatives than to trade cash, but it's simply so much more efficient from a, a funding standpoint. That, that's what people do. So that's spreading between different exchanges, not necessarily the same product. You can even think of, well, if Bitcoin's going to go up $10, maybe Ethereum's going to go up by some rough percentage amount. So a lot of people do that. Uh, B2C2, others, it's very competitive. All the big HFTs are in the, are in the game now. And that gives you that inside spread. Now that inside spread, you have to realize it's kind of based on nothing. There's no fundamentals there. It just, you know, people trade on different platforms. It moves the price a little bit up, a little bit down. And then there's a lot of firms trying to kind of, in the short run, keep those things in line. But when the market moves significantly, then the market makers, they don't really know where the new inside spread should be. Because maybe if they're trading derivative versus cash, you know, if you say, well, the basis is 20% annualized now, then you do that a little bit. But when the basis really kind of moves lower, then if you're not careful, what you end up doing is you end up buying at a high premium and selling the cash and, and you lose money because it doesn't matter how much bid offer you capture by doing that trade repeatedly. If you're on average buying at a 20% premium and then hedging with cash and it goes down to 7% premium, you're going to lose money. That's what it is. So all those high frequency trading firms, they have very strict position limits and they don't do too much. They don't do too much to avoid being caught in one of those big moves. And so how does the market find a new equilibrium when you have a big move like that? And that's when you get to the outside spread. The outside spread is kind of saying, well, you know, Bitcoin's trading at 36,000 now, 
super tight spread that we call the inside spread, thanks to the high-frequency trading firm. But if the market starts to go up or down, we don't really know where it stops. And the, and the market-making firms themselves, they don't know. They're just going to follow wherever the market's kind of going, trying not to lose too much money on the, on, on the move. Um, and in fact, typically making more money than not on, on big moves. Um, but you find that there's other participants that need to come in to decide where the price is going to settle at a new equilibrium. And those firms are going to be more like slightly longer term hedge funds. So they can be very quantitative or they can be very manual, but they're the kind of people that form views. You know, they say, based on my analysis, whatever it may be, you know, it can be central bank policy. If you want to be very fancy, it can be just whatever happened with the S&P. You know, we know now that there's a strong correlation between normal assets, uh, risk assets like the S&P, the NASDAQ and crypto, although it's kind of they've diverged a little bit recently. So there's some people they look at what's happening with the Nasdaq and they say, well, you know, crypto should be higher. Rates are going up, rates are going down. That has implications for crypto. But in their mind, they're not saying, well, crypto is going to go from 36 to 36,020. Uh, they're thinking, you know, there should be a floor here at 30 and there should be a ceiling at 45. And so when they see those prices be approached, then they get in. And that's really where the market settles. Um, and once that market has settled, or I guess it happens at the same time, the high-frequency trading firms are still always providing that inside spread, but there would be nothing without the folks that are willing to provide that outside spread, which is not really like a spread that you can see. It's kind of implicit, you know? In fact, when you look at an order book, it's one thing that's important to realize is that what you see in the order book is not the real order book in the sense that most of your listeners will be familiar with iceberg orders. So that's an order that can be there and that, that's hidden to everyone but you. But even outside of iceberg orders, you've also got some sort of implicit liquidity in the sense that there's some people, they're not in the market, but when the market gets to a, such, a certain level, then they will place their passive orders. And in that sense, the book is, is in, in some ways more liquid than it appears. In other ways, it's less liquid than it appears because you've also got the problem of of people just trying to make a quick buck, you know, with those deep orders, but as soon as it gets a little bit wide, maybe they'll remove them. So you have to be kind of careful what, what you really um, analyze from, from the order book. So anyway, I like to think of that inner versus outside spread when I think of, of, the, of the big moves. And in terms of the, the, the very short term, I think liquidations are very important when you have a, a, big, um, a big downward move like that. So tons of liquidations, there's very good public data now um, like aggregators of how many, uh, how much was liquidated on this and that platform. So, you know, keep an eye on that. It's quite important. And, um, and then when it comes to the outside spread, I mean, that's a little bit more difficult to, to say because that's just where the market ends up settling. It's very difficult to, to know where that might be. As a market maker, what kind of like, what do you do during a crash like this? Like, do you just pull your orders? Are you like trying to just not get wrecked or do you, like take advantage of it at all because what i'm always wondering like you can kind of see like we're trading in a range and then suddenly like orders are gone and the entire market just crashes and you're like okay where where has the liquidity gone and is that just because like a market maker or a, or a few market makers just decide okay this is getting too risky we don't want any more or like what's the cause of that when there's a big move i go like this <laughs> <laughs> it's uh... The one I don't like about the banks is that in, in uh, kind of recent years, uh, maybe starting like 2014, the banks started saying, ah, there's like good, good volatility and bad volatility. 
you know, and there's volatility that makes you lose money and volatility that makes you good money. And and surprisingly, like as time went by, it was always like the volatility is getting worse. Now that that's I think that's bollocks. It's just that the banks historically have been well historically like in the past, let's say 15 years, they're starting being replaced in that inside spread by the high frequency trading firms. So you look at a firm like Citadel, they're now the biggest probably market maker in US equities. It's not the banks anymore. The banks are mostly using the exchanges now as hedging venues and they're kind of doing bigger block trades and things like that, which kind of relate to the outside spread. You know, that's what happened with the, that big hedge fund, um, Archegos, if I remember, that blew up. Uh, you know, that big, big prime brokerage relationship with all the banks and then massive positions in Viacom and, and other, other firms that ended up going against them, that to be liquidated. And what the banks did, they actually took huge risk of saying, well, we're going to liquidate you. We got like a 20% buffer. So basically we're like 20% in the money on the liquidation, except we've still got the risk. So now we're going to have to go and sell it. And that's, you know, that's when you had those huge, huge drops in the price of those stocks. So the banks are very much like more like in the outside spread business these days in, in a lot of asset classes. Um, and so, so I, um, I think that if you're a good market maker, and that means not a bank, it's got to mean what we call a non-bank liquidity provider. Uh, the famous ones are the likes like XTX, Citadel, you know, they're, they're very famous, you know, Virtue as well. Uh, I like to think B2C2 would do a good job too. Um, but those are the firms that are going to really benefit from the volatility. Because if you've got volatility, you've got big volumes. And normally, if you have good algos, you're a little bit adaptive to the market conditions. And you know that the kind of liquidity that you show when the market doesn't move is not the same that you show when the market is very volatile. But it can, I mean, I don't want to say it takes balls. Uh, because that would be an exaggeration, but it does require confidence in your in your algos. And that's something actually I want to touch upon perhaps um, with your listeners. Avi mentioned that the premium on the on some of the futures went the other way around. There was an opportunity. Those opportunities are pretty gonna get more and more difficult to capture manually um, because the markets are getting faster. And the kind of opportunities that you can capture manually, they tend to relate to that outside spread. It's going to be, there's not like an actual outright real arb in like buying one future at a negative, at a discount and selling another one at a premium. It's going to be more like one is at less of a premium than the other. And I feel like there's good relative value there. When you're going to get into a trade and your trade is going to take like two weeks to resolve. That Those are going to be the kind of horizons. Because the moment that the, it actually goes negative in one future and positive in, in the others, then more and more that's going to be captured electronically. And so there's kind of two, two roads to be taken as, a, as, a, as an, let's say an aspiring trader, is that you can try to form longer term views, think of relative values, think more of fundamentals, or you can be on the lookout for, ex, for sexy opportunities but then you got to be automated. You got to learn to code. You're gonna, you got to, you got to connect to the APIs, and that's something I, I do myself a little bit. PA, um, I, I did that uh, that stuff on the derivative futures, but it's actually very difficult to do because even and you know on the side I code my little things. It's got nothing to do with the the fancy code uh, at B2T, at B2T2. But you know it's it's not slow. I'm I'm you know fancy enough that I'm kind of collocated at diff different servers in different regions. Um, so kind of fast, but not so fast. And a lot of times when there's an opportunity, you find that you can trade one leg. And even if you're trading within like 20 milliseconds on the other exchange, it's often the case that you miss the second leg. And then you have, really have to think, well, 
if you're going to buy a, a future at a discount and sell one at a premium, and what you end up doing is you, you just sell the one at a premium, but you miss the one at the discount, what do you do now? And maybe it's actually more important to think of that than the basic algorithm, which is, hey, if there's such a discrepancy between the two futures, get in, right? Maybe it's what's more important is to consider what do I do in the eventuality that I only trade one leg? Do I just immediately take whatever price is available, even though I, I'm, I'm, I'm not at my target anymore? Do I then instead hedge with the perpetual swap, the, the risk that I don't have? Uh, and you have to think hard about those things because as uh, maybe your more sophisticated listeners know, when you trade some amount of a perpetual swap and some amount of a future, it's not actually the same amount of risk. If you trade like 100 contracts, $100 of perp and $100 of future, it's not the same amount of risk. You really have to be careful about that. The way the sort of uh, rule of thumb is that if you want to know how to hedge one future with another or a perp with another or, a, or rather a perp with the future, but they don't have the same maturity, so they're not exactly the same contract, you have to think of it in Bitcoin terms. You have to think I'm not buying $100 of perp. You have to think I'm buying like whatever, 0.2 Bitcoin or whatever it, it might be. And how you get to that is you take the number of contracts that you trade. So let's say, well, we'll, we'll take a simple example, $100,000. You divide that by the price at which the product is trading. So roughly now you divide that by 35,000. So if you trade $100,000, 100,000 contracts of a perp that's trading at 35,000, roughly that's three Bitcoin. You just divide by one the other and that's three Bitcoin. So now if you want to hedge that with the future, you have to, to back out, okay, I want to trade three Bitcoin equivalent of the future. And that means it's not going to be 100,000 contracts actually it's going to be more. It's going to be more in a positive funding environment because the future, if the perp is at 35, the future at the premium is going to be maybe like 37. And so you actually have to take like three Bitcoins times 37, and that gives you the number of contracts that you want to trade. Okay? So it's really important to, to keep that mm -hmm. in mind because when you do those relative value strategies, you don't want to be caught off guard because you think you've got the same number of contracts, but in reality, you've not got the same Bitcoin risk. And if you've not got the same Bitcoin risk, then you are exposed, even though you don't think you are, to gyrations in the Bitcoin price. So a bit of a digression, but I think it's a good like uh, trick that uh, every trader that trades really should know. I like it. I like it. I mean, I think most people, for better or worse, I think it's for worse, don't really think in the sense that they actually want to hedge their risk in any way. Like, I think most people are just in it to kind of have risk. But um, I think it's definitely a good way to look at the market, right? Because if you don't, I mean, you're taking something on that you really shouldn't be taking on. And I think in general, it's good to know that this kind of stuff works how it works. Because if you don't, you just don't understand, understand the market deep enough. I should clarify, this is for inverse contracts uh, specifically, right? Yeah. It's inverse where you trade a number of dollars. Yeah. Would you say in general, because you've been saying the market gets faster and faster, right? Would you say there's going to be, for like a discretionary trader, there's going to be more opportunities on the, um, or it's going to be easier to make money on the longer time frames If you're like, let's say you're not good at coding, you just like want to be trading opportunities when you get getting them, right? Would you say like it's easier and an easier environment to kind of trade the high time frames, or would you say it's an easier one to trade the lower time frames? I think that's... Um... 
you look at conventional markets, what's great is if you trade FX, extremely cheap. It's crazy cheap to trade FX. And so those execution costs, I think, can be a huge part of your edge to keep them really low. And if the market becomes more efficient in crypto, one should be able to get better deals on the execution. And you really have to be ruthless about that. You have to be ruthless about your variable costs because they're going to eat into your profit seriously. Um, that means shopping around in terms of your venues. Um, you just have to do that. And that means that there's a like a tension between executions getting cheaper because it's getting more competitive in that inside spread that, uh, that the HFTs are competing for. But that also means that it's also getting cheaper to trade risk. And so it's getting cheaper to express views that would be typically more, more long-term. And I, I think that's, some, that's maybe overall positive for the market. But at the same time, there's also the, the professionalism of the people that take slightly longer views also increases. You know, there's more and more quant funds that, are, that, that keep the market, um, you know, uh, not in line, but, uh, you know, people have models of where the market should be. Uh, in foreign exchange, that's why it's very difficult to predict foreign exchange prices because there's so many people trying to trade based on fundamentals that the markets end up being a random walk, right? When you think about it, if the market's efficient, it's a random walk. If it's not a random walk, then there's an opportunity. Um, but by taking that opportunity, you make the market more of a random walk, right? So I think it's best. Uh, it's a good time now to, to trade uh, cheaply. Um, and that typically is more um, more positive for, for slightly longer term strategies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing you mentioned on the automation and coding side of things, and also the the relative sophistication of the B two C two algos against your own, even for example. One thing we like to ask people on the quantitative side is how much does the scope for discretion widen? when the market gets as crazy as it does, like on the crash? Uh, and if that scope does widen, what actions can you then take? Is it just a matter of sizing or what kind of decisions become available um, when the market flies off the rails, so to speak? I'll give you an example. Um, so what's automation? If you want to be an HFT, it's, you're not going to be a one-man shop. That just, that's cheap as sale. Um, was pretty, last time you could be a one-man HFT was 2016. Um, now, you can still use automation. You can use automation to collect market data, get alerts. You know, maybe Twilio, the, that's a service to like send automated SMS and phone calls. You can set up your own alerts because it's, you know, there's many apps where you can say, well, you know, tell me when Bitcoin hits some price level. But then if, if you're looking at, um, and I like to talk about this because I'm a rates trader at heart, you know, opportunities that Avi mentioned, there's like a difference between the two futures that implies some some rate between the two, some, some forward rates. Um, well, in that case, maybe you want to track that. But you're not going to find an app that's going to tell you, hey, when the Duribit uh, six-month future is trading there and then another one is trading at a different level, alert me. So, you know, it can be things like you create an account on Twilio and then you set yourself up with a little, a little alerting system that tells you exactly when the thing that you're looking for, because you have a view on it, is going to trigger. So that can be a nice way to use automation to your advantage without competing with the, with the big boys. Um, so what I, I, I have something like that personally, actually specifically on, on those rates, 
Uh, so, you know, I once got woken up in the middle of the night. But then, interestingly, um, that's also when the scope for discretion widens, as you said, because on that fateful day where the market really reversed and the, some premiums went negative, I just turned off everything and I just went manual. Because one thing that computers, they're, they're not so, I mean, it's getting better with machine learning and everything, but when you get, um, when the market becomes more efficient, where the competition happens between algos is you try to detect something like really fast or something that repeats frequently and you can milk it. But for an, a, a computer to detect the once in a lifetime event and to be ready for it, it's going to be difficult because sure, you can always have, you can always calibrate an algorithm that's going to tell you when this is the once in a lifetime opportunity to buy Bitcoin. But the problem is that unless your algorithm actually triggers frequently and you can see it making money, you're never going to be comfortable enough to go and let that algo trade automatically based on a signal that almost never occurs. On the other hand, your brain is good at, at figuring out, okay, this is it. Now is the time. You know, I got that when um, the, the GBTC premium got to like, I think it was minus 17.5%. I was like, this is it. You know, sure it might, I think it's lingering at like minus 12 now or something like that. Like, this is it. I think that there's an opportunity and it's not gonna be, it's not gonna go lower. It was, I think, roughly the first time that the premium of, of GBTC went negative. So how would you have trained a model to determine that, well, actually, we're going to get in at minus 17.5%? It's really difficult. But your brain, based on everything that you've seen, um, historically, it might be even other products that you've seen, even in other markets, then you know, hmm, feels to me that minus 17.5 is a good level. And so that's what happened that night. Uh, the futures went negative. I was like, this is it. I, 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 I want to go all in now. And actually added to that where the price was, because I remember roughly where the price was when the funding was quite negative was around 30,000. I think we even went under a bit. I remember like 28,000, something like that. I was like, not only is the premium negative, but the price is kind of low. I was like, 30,000? That's a good price. And so whereas an algorithm would have just closed the position in the money or something like that, I actually decided I'm just going to go long at this level. I'm going to go long at this level and I'm going to capture that negative funding and pretty it's going to reverse in, uh, in the next couple of days of, or, or hours. But also the price, I feel comfortable that the price is not going to be less than 30,000. But it's really difficult to, uh, to get a computer to do that automatically and to be comfortable that it will do it profitably. So that's when your, your brain, I think, is a better tool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, I mean the thing is with, with having so little data points, right, that you kind of have to use just discretion. I mean, there's no way around it, I, I think. I mean, I'm not in that kind of whole world where I start program, uh, programming stuff, but I mean, that just makes sense to me. It's the same with any kind of trading strategy that I've seen people use. But it's like, if you haven't tested it, I mean, you can't trust it, um, but you can only test it if you actually get the, the market environment that you need for it. I, I, I just love the full kind of Rambo visual where it's like, all right, you know what? <laughs> Max like emerges from his dungeon where people haven't seen him in like three months. Cracks his neck. Like, all right, turn off the machines. It's I'm I'm, I'm ready to trade. <laughs> and then it, it's all manual. Uh, that's the kind of uh, fan fiction in my head. What have What have you been doing since then? Because I mean, I 
as far as I understand, you just kept that position, right? Uh, yeah, I, I closed some. Um, I think around 35, a little bit too soon. But, you know, whatever. Uh, I'm also not a, a good discretionary trader. You have to also know yourself. Uh, I'm much better with rate, which is a bit more cerebral, I guess, uh, perhaps. I don't have that, that great, you know, intuition that, that makes um, legendary traders. Um, and so you have to know yourself. Now, there's such a time where, you know, even a monkey with a dartboard, um, or I suppose a, a monkey with a keyboard in this case, would, would, would be able to make money. And so you have to also recognize those. Um, so I, I wouldn't trade like the Fibonacci retracement. That's not for me. I'm not, I don't have, I don't have it in me. Some people, some people do. Um, but uh, yeah, so mostly, mostly like in the weeds coding, but, uh, but sometimes you have to recognize opportunity when it knocks. Um, and, uh, and what have I, have I been doing since? Um, well, if you look at the broader picture, the NASDAQ is higher, crypto's lower. That sucks. I uh, kind of wish crypto were higher in comparison to that. It might be temporary. It might be that, um, you know, the market needs to absorb all the selling that, that's occurred. I feel like uh, uh, maybe a time like this, it's a good time to also look at other coins because when the markets readjust, you also find all the cross pairs also readjust, right? Um, I think there's some interesting coins. If I have one sort of more long-term view is that free privacy coins are going to become more important in the future. Um, it just... I, you, when you speak to, um, well, especially a couple of years ago, um, there was a big mo moment where all the regulators around the world got convinced by crypto because they realized that you could trace everything and they thought that was a good thing. Um, and so that was, I guess, positive for the industry to be able to, to have that narrative because that got the state's actors on board. Um, but at the end of the day, the ethos of crypto is also, you know, be your own bank and no one can stop you from, from, from doing the transactions that you want. And I think that at the moment where, you know, there's been a bit of, a, of euphoria and uh, people just wanted to buy Bitcoin because it was going up. Uh, but, you, you know, you might want to consider, well, if you go back to the basics of, um, of being your own bank and, and um, uh, insulating yourself from the, from the, the mainstream financial system, you have to look, I think, at, at privacy coins, at least consider them and, um, and, and you know, maybe look at the new developments that, that occur in, in their cryptography. What I find um, still interesting is that some, some privacy coins don't have good wallets. You might be thinking if there's ever <clears throat> in the future a proper good wallet easy to use on your phone for some of the privacy coins that don't have them, that should provide, you know, positive um, uh, momentum for them. Um, also, the fact that um, Bitcoin was back in the day supposed to also implement private transactions. I think a lot of people feel that Bitcoin is a little bit monolithic and it's going to be difficult for, for Bitcoin to get to deliver all the promises that it had in the past. So there's also the fact that we might not ever see that in Bitcoin. I'm not saying we won't, but we might not. So maybe that also will provide uh, momentum for some privacy coins as maybe the narrative of not being able to have your assets confiscated might move to um, to uh, to some other coins. So yeah, those are some of the like more long-term views that I have. But again, I'm more of a trader than an investor. Yeah. So really, don't listen to me on that. But <laughs> those big moves are good times to reassess what you think of of the relative values of some coins because everything gets rejigged, 
and sometimes a price level that was too rich now becomes cheap. That's very interesting, um, especially because, as we've observed during the course of this cycle, uh, altcoin sector-specific narratives started to emerge, uh, with DeFi probably being the main one, that, hey, look, these are productive assets, they have their own cash flows, we can maybe imperfectly analogize between these DeFi assets and then, you know, companies or businesses in the real world, quote-unquote. And then the market kind of learned the hard way that that decoupling or decorrelation, dispersion, whatever D word you prefer, uh, narrative hasn't fully come to fruition, right? And the most compelling evidence for that was, of course, when Bitcoin crashed, uh, everything went with it. And those altcoins just became collateral, like they've always been, uh, for those larger, presumably, Bitcoin and Ethereum positions. Uh, do you find any of the uh, altcoin decoupling narratives compelling that we were perhaps either entering, have entered, or may enter an era where you can have maybe secular trends or separate books for altcoins and not just have them be kind of beta or leveraged call options <laughs> on Bitcoin? Yeah, I um, I think so. I'm going to make a recommendation there. Um, you know, w when you start doing that, you've got to get into the get into the details. Some analysis I saw were quite interesting is if you start to look at um, those DeFi tokens like a, like a business, like a, like shares in a business. Um, I think I find that a little bit aggressive for me to think that you know you buy the Uniswap token and it's like you're buying a share of Uniswap. I feel that the governance is not as strong as I would need to be comfortable myself. However, I really like, I think, and that's my recommendation, there's a really good fund called ARCA. Uh, I think their website is ar.ca, ARCA. Um, and they have a really good um, newsletter where they get into those analysis. And I remember maybe maybe two months ago, they had a comparison um, as if you were comparing traded like listed stocks of those DeFi tokens and they looked, okay, what are the cash flows? What, what are the, the ecosystem, what's the ecosystem generating? What's being captured in one way or another by the token? And then they gave some sort of, uh, yeah, fair values for all those tokens. I think that's quite interesting. Um, and what's good is that it, there's oftentimes with funds like Arca, some free alpha, because the thing is, you know, make no mistake, they do the analysis privately and they take positions on the back of it and then they publish it. That's how you get rewarded, right? Um, but, you know, if you're, if you're following that stuff closely, it's definitely possible to kind of ride on their coattails. And, you know, you like the analysis, um, they probably have the position on, uh, and I'm sure they, they tend to have the proper disclosures. Um, and then, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I think is, um, makes, uh, makes that kind of investing uh, quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think the best way to look at that kind of stuff is to, I mean, you see something there that you like, right? You see analysis from there that you like, and then you think, okay, the market is too high right now. And then you can just wait for a dip or something, right? That's like the best way I think to go about this. Like you don't have to actually copy trade people. You can just see, okay, does their reasoning make sense? And then look for an entry yourself, right? I really like that tip. I'm going to look into that. Absolutely. And also you can, a, a given analysis can give you ideas for something, you know, that you had like the Uniswap tokens, or maybe you want to do something like that for maybe centralized exchange tokens, you know, just like to translate some learnings that you get uh, from from some smart people in the space to to your own thinking, and um, and that yeah it can be a great source of edge. And um, what was I going to say? The um, uh, what's really important 
is to try to absorb as much of that information by osmosis, so to speak, you know, to get a couple of newsletters that you like and read them and try to really go through them and absorb them so that when the times come, when the time, the time comes and you've got maybe such an opportunity, the pattern is going to emerge. And that's one of the most important thing as a trader or, or as an investor is to have that experience of having seen different regimes, different environments, so that when things change, they don't always exactly repeat, but you're going to see patterns from the past that are going to help your trading in the in the here and now. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. And it's no secret that just the content, the amount and quality of freely available content has gone up so much over yes. the past years and just the professionalization of the space. Uh, there's certainly plenty to go on. Um, one of the you know, quintessential questions. And there's a certain irony of people always ask this after the market crashed. So no one asks at 60k, is the bull run over? But they'll ask at 30k if the bull runs over, right? So there's a kind of built-in asymmetry there. But of course, given, um, you know, almost going back to step one, people say, you know, 40% correction is okay. And then it goes 60. And then even just on a base logical level, you're like, okay, if 40 is okay, does that mean 60 is like an extra discount? Or does it mean that it's no longer a correction, right? And Either way, that discussion tends to center or converge at uh, a pretty difficult question to answer, which is, is the bull market over, right? Um, you mentioned in the beginning that you saw some, at B2C2 at least, some outflows from Bitcoin on the way up, and at least the latter portion of the rally was being faded. And of course, people have different time frames and time horizons for answering the question, is the bull market over? Um, like I recently listened to uh, Uncommon Core, where Suzu of Three Arrows Capital was pointing at larger trends all the way to like antitrust legislation in the US and just general adoption and where we are for the year, two years. But of course, maybe in the shorter term, someone who bought at 60K may be less concerned uh, with, with narrative point of views. I'm sure, you know, people, you have people around you who maybe aren't seasoned investors traders or don't care as much uh, but I, I would be totally shocked if no one asked you hey is the bull market over uh, when you get that question or even when you when you hear it how do you conceptualize things or how do you answer it i suppose the simple thing is where do we go from here i'm lucky in that most of my real life friends don't give a damn about crypto i seldom get that question in reality but I do think it's actually important to try to segregate your like real life friends and your crypto friends, which, and you can have many of those, because you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to suffer from groupthink. I think um, so. It's important to try to diversify the viewpoints and not be like always only in crypto, because um, then you, if your real friends are all in crypto, then you're gonna have affinities with some of them, and probably your all of your friends gonna think the market is gonna gonna go up at the same time, right? So you want to cultivate. A bit more diversity um now is the bull market over i'm not going to answer the question directly but i will provide some pointers there's um i i learned a lot from uh there's a really interesting book actually i think it's two books uh market wizards uh I can't remember the author but it's a very famous book from like the 80s and 90s about some famous traders like portula jones and others and they share their their, their thought process one thing i liked about portula jones is that he wanted to catch the turning points in the market, the bottoms and the tops. But of course, that's super difficult to do. You know, there's only one trade that's happening at the top and one trade happening at the bottom, right? Uh, the ding-dong high and the ding-dong low. But what he did is, is that he, when he felt he was going to turn, he would take a position with tight stuff. And then sometimes 
it was it was too early and then it would get stopped out I'm like okay i get stopped out i'm going to enter again potentially um you know sometime in the future hey you can do that a few times but there's a point at which you do catch the bottom or 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 somewhere roughly where the bottom is now you have to accept that you're going to be stopped out from time to time hopefully it's going to be a, a tight stop but i think the maybe the implicit lesson there is that it's quite important in in, in trading to pre-commit to some future actions that you might do because the you know going going on tilt and when the market moves and you're losing too much money or something or maybe you're making a lot of money and you start to change your thinking because you're making or losing money that's not positive so what you want is to try to pre-commit as much as possible to what you're going to do so a simple example is use stops if you're trading short term you have to use them i'm not very good at that uh, i wish i were um I, I recommend that you use stop losses and you stick to them. Uh, now you can reevaluate your thinking, and I guess you can have trading stops and things like that. You can change your stop if you want to change it, but you should not not have a stop because you're like, I'll reassess when the times come. Because what's going to happen is that you're going to go long and wrong, and it's going to go against you, and you're like, ah, I'll, I'll sit on it, and it's going to go down another 10%. Um, so don't do that. And on the other hand, um, if you're looking at like longer term trading, then you have to decide if I buy Bitcoin at 60, is that a short-term speculative position or is that a long-term investment? You have to decide beforehand if you're in it for the tech, right? If you're in it for the tech, that's good, but then you make the investment decision on that basis. And if you're in it for the tech, you pretty don't mortgage your house to do that, right? So if you think that you wanna buy at 60,000, but you couldn't take it if it goes down to 40,000, then yes, you know you uh, you need to use a stop loss and things like that. If you're really in it for the tech and you feel like that's an amount of money that you set aside, it's for the long run, and then you don't even set any stop loss, you don't look at the price for the next six months, then that's also fine. But what's important is that you decide ahead of time why you're doing this. That I think that's that's quite key. Yeah, I love it. I love it. This is something I I usually tell people too because there's big difference, right, between trading and investing. And people always mix the two, even more so when the market goes crazy, right? And it's like kind of the worst thing you can do because the moment you get stressed during a market movement, you're going to do the most dumb shit imaginable if you don't have any rules that you can kind of follow. I agree. But see, Don, there's a natural progression, right? You start off with a scalp. It goes wrong. You're just day trading it. You're more underwater. You're swing trading. Then it becomes a position trade. Then you're investing. And then, you know, you're in it for the tech. And then you become a, a, a Telegram community moderator once you're minus 99% on the position. <laughs> there are some really sophisticated models uh, which tell you kind of what the reason for your trade is the more it goes against you. But of course, totally agree. Um, time frame preference and also just the lesson is you should know in advance what you expect to see and what the limitations of that expectation are are and when that isn't aligned that's probably a sign to to mm -hmm. get out I, i'm no i'm no psychologist and i'm not i'm not even a you know half decent day trader but i can tell you that it brings such relief and peace of mind to make those kind of decisions sometimes so there's a coin you know i'm supposed to be a no coiner it's not true for the longest of time i've had like a coin that's not very well known and I just bought it at some stage because I thought there was an opportunity. And I stopped looking at it for a long, long time. And it went in the bull market. It did very well. And now it's basically down 50% from peak. 
it's a material amount of change that I lost there, but I feel totally cool about it. I'm very happy. I'm like, first of all, I'm still up because I bought some long time ago. Yes, I lost 50%, but I don't care because it's not something like I don't rely on it. I don't, I don't check the price even once a week. I'm just very happy that I have that in my portfolio. And I think it's going to do you know, well for the very long run. And if like, you can stomach like huge losses if you set that aside in your mind as something where it's not so it's not a speculative investment. So I, I really recommend, you know, getting to that inner peace. It's quite liberating. <laughs> Especially for, for the investments. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, do you have any plans like on what to do right now? Basically, let's say this this do you plan on this range just continuing and just like playing the range? Do you plan on like a breakout, a breakdown? Do you have anything in mind or are you just taking it as it comes? Well, that's where that's when you know that I'm not a good investor. Um, I'm a random walk kind of guy. So I think if the market's at 36 now, I uh, it's going to stay at 36. That's my working assumption. I know it's not it's not very interesting to say. Uh, I do feel though, because um, I'm you know I'm talking with Flavio, the the co-founder of B2C2, we're, we're, we're very close, and you know he was feeling a little bit like nah, this is it, you know, end of the bull market. And I don't know. I'm usually the pessimist. Is usually the the optimist. Uh, in fact, you know he has a nose for opportunity, and he got us into great parties uh, over time by sensing that we have to go <laughs> somewhere in you know, dodgy alley or something. Um, and I'm the pessimist, but this time around, I told him, Flavio, don't worry about it. I'm sure it's going to be back to like 40, 50,000 in no time." Now, you know, it's just a silly hunch, and I'm not a good uh, a good investor. But, you know, for some reason this time around, I'm, I'm feeling not as pessimistic as, as I've been in the past. So, you know, take that with a pinch of salt. But uh, for the day-to-day, -day, the market making and everything, I'm the 36,000 guy now. But in my sort of heart of hearts, I feel like uh, we might see 50K again, you know, maybe this year. Nice. There you go, Duck. We, we, we squeezed some numbers out of him at the end. Um, no, that, that was super cool. Um, I, I've certainly learned learned a lot just like the last episode and i'm sure our audience will appreciate it as well especially when you get to discuss the nitty-gritty microstructure and then and the idea I, you know the visualization of inside and outside spreads is super helpful and i'm sure our audience will be grateful as well um you've been very kind with your time thanks you for coming again a second time max i'm sure a third time is on the cards uh, always welcome um no shortage of things to discuss in crypto uh, but we've loved having you on i'm sure our audience will as well um any final notes from yourself pearls of wisdom shout outs almost kind of a, you, just like you've won a radio contest you get to address the crowd anything you want to leave us with hmm. i can say something silly well first of all it's always a pleasure to 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 chat with you guys uh i mentioned you want to get to that inner peace uh you know which you're trading i take it back actually because if you're really, <laughs> if you're really the buddha you don't trade. So, you know, if anything, you want to be like halfway between, you know, uh, an anxious, uh, you know, insecure person and the Buddha, because that's where you, that's where you can be a good trader. Um, if you're the Buddha, there's not, there's nothing to do. You know, so that, that's a bit too soon. So uh, yeah, don't actually try to get to inner peace too fast. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're going to be disappointed with trading strategy. <laughs> Grateful for that spiritual advice. Duck, comments, questions, concerns? No, I'm, I'm more than happy. Learned a lot had a great time always a pleasure 
cool guys. Cool. That's all from us. Thanks again, Max. Thank you, Blockfolio, for sponsoring the show. And we'll see you guys for the next one. Take care.